And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you get your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, we're kind of in uh, the middle of the chapter here and just going verse by verse. And today will literally be a verse. Uh, I got to looking at this thing and it was like, man, oh man. It's, it's covering a couple things that you would not think would be paired together in Scripture. And I'll, I'll be talking about this, but just to give you a heads up, the two things are glory and the road to glory, which Paul says is suffering. And th those are two big things. <laughs> and so we're going to take two weeks to talk about those big things. All right, so let me get to it. Romans chapter 8. All right, we're going to begin reading. It's just, actually, we're going to start in 16. I'm going to do this for the next couple weeks because that's where the sentence starts. So just for a little bit of context, we're going to start in uh, verse 16. And it's there that, well, would you stand with me in, in honor of the reading of God's Word? I, I apologize. Verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of, of God, and now 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of, of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, we, we're going to need your spirit, as we always do, Lord, to properly interpret your word, to see what jewels you have there for us. And this morning we're considering this inheritance as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So I pray that you would fill our heart with your spirit to help us to understand, to see these things, the inheritance, the glory that awaits. I speak this truth in our hearts and we'll give you praise and glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as I said, verse 17 introduces us to two important biblical ideas, suffering and glory. Now, Ray Stedman, he says it's the hurts and the hallelujahs. I was trying to communicate this to Tyler the other day, and I forgot the first age. It's the hurts and the hallelujahs. The verse begins with glory and then talks about suffering and then ends with glory again. Now, the first statement is that the children of God are actually heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, that is a marvelous thing, to be an heir of God Himself. You know, sometimes children hope fondly for what they might inherit, uh, inherit from their parents, but quite often these very human hopes are disappointing. One of the richest men who ever lived was Cecil Rhodes. Now, this may be... First time you've ever heard of Cecil. He lived in the last half of the 19th century. Uh, he, he was an Englishman and he moved to South Africa for health reasons. But while he was there, he amassed a vast fortune in diamond mining. Now, he, he died when he was only 49, so he lived a short life. In his will, he left most of his riches, not to his immediate family, much to their resentment, <laughs> but to endow the famous Rhodes Scholarship. You ever heard of a Rhodes Scholar? Those scholarships are funded by the money that he left behind. Um, 
his brother, Arthur, he says, well, there it is. Uh, when this disappointing news reached him, he says, it seems that I shall have to win a scholarship if he wants any of his brother's money. Well, the French writer of the Middle Ages, Francois Rabelais, he, he, he was also a Franciscan friar. He made the following will. He says, I owe much. I possess nothing. I give the rest to the poor. How unlike God. God owes nothing. He possesses everything, and he gives it all to his children. However, there are certain things that we need to know about our spiritual inheritance. And the first is that it's laid up in heaven for us, which means it's in the future. Now, this should be almost self-evident, but it's important to emphasize it in light of a certain kind of gospel that is popular in our day. It's been around for a while, but it's still popular. It says that Jesus died to give us abundant life now, and that means that he's going to provide all that we would ever need or want. And it's the or want that takes this whole doctrine and kind of tilts it on its side. You see, if you're in trouble, Jesus will solve your troubles. If you're unhappy, he'll make you happy. If you're discouraged, he'll lift you up and give you a joyful and unquenchable heart song. Whatever your needs may be, Jesus is the provision for those needs. Tell him about them. Claim the answers to them by faith. 30 years ago, we called it the name it, claim it theology. Today, we call it the prosperity gospel. During their brief reign on uh, religious TV, Jim and Tammy Baker, they preached this kind of gospel. They taught that God would make believers rich and prosperous and keep them healthy. healthy. Tammy said, when I tell God what car I want, I even tell him the color. Such a gospel forgets that Jesus himself said that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And they forget that his call to discipleship, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's why in our text, Paul follows his statement that if we are God's children, then we are heirs of God. He follows that with a sober reminder, provided we suffer with him. Now, true Christianity is honest at this point. It doesn't deny that there are very important promises for this life, the one that we are living right now, promises that God will be with us in trouble, that he'll provide inner peace in turmoil. How many of you ever, have ever just um, encountered the peace of God when there should be no peace in your life? That's what we're talking about. Or that he will minister comfort when we're distressed and how about this, that he will never leave us. Those all apply to us here and now. But the basic idea is not that we will escape trouble here, but rather we'll be given the grace to go through it. And the blessings of our inheritance are almost entirely reserved for us in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, True evangelism does not offer some panacea for all the ills in our life in this world. It does not promise to make us perfect in a moment or set the whole world right. It says, rather, in the world you shall have tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. End quote. 
So we start from the truth that most of our rewards are in the future. But then we immediately want to ask, of what does our inheritance consist? What is it that we are actually going to inherit? Well, there are a number of things that I call lesser items. And then there's the greatest prize of all. Let's begin with the lesser items. Uh, first, number one, is a heavenly home. The first thing that comes to mind here is a heavenly home that Jesus promised to his disciples the night before he was arrested and crucified. It's there in John 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You see, there is a place prepared especially for all believers. And it's guaranteed by no less an authority than the Lord of glory himself, Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing, a heavenly home. That's what typically people think about. I'm going to go to heaven. Oh, I'm going to have an eternal place to live. Okay. Number two is a heavenly banquet. In several of his parables, the Lord spoke of a heavenly banquet that all of those who belong to him are invited to. In one story, he told of a great wedding supper that many were invited to who later refused to come and, and how the master sent out servants to unexpected places to find new guests. In Luke 15, it's a parable of the banquet prepared for the prodigal son. And still another, it's a wedding feast to which five wise women were admitted and five foolish women were, were shut out. Now, there are several, several uh, or similar but passing references to other occasions of what we might call shared celebration. These stories present our inheritance as joy and secure fellowship. We have a foretaste of these things in our observance of the Lord's Supper. It looks forward to that great coming, great marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, number three is rule with Christ. Another feature of our inheritance is that we will rule with Jesus in His kingdom. Now, there is some difference among biblical scholars as to whether this refers to an earthly rule with Christ in some future age or to a heavenly rule alone. But whatever its full meaning, there's no doubt that some important ruling authority is promised. Here's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He said, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. In one of his parables, Jesus spoke of servants who had shown their faithfulness during the master's absence and being rewarded cities that they would reign over in the master's kingdom. So rule with Christ is a third. A fourth is one that I really like, likeness to Christ. We're going to be made like Christ himself writes about this in his first epistle, and he uses language similar to Paul here in Romans 8. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what, will, what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, it's hard to imagine a greater inherent, inheritance than to be made like the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His attributes. 
in view of the magnitude of those last four items that I just mentioned, why do I call them lesser? Well, let's consider the greater inheritance. I want to begin, uh, don't fall asleep on me here. You've got about a minute and a half of English to go through, okay? How many like English? You better raise your hand, you speak it every day, right? I want to begin by reminding you of a grammatical distinction, namely that there are two kinds of genitives in most languages, the subjective and the objective genitive. Generally speaking, genitives, they have to do with possession, which is what we're going to be talking about, measure or origin, but we're going to be talking about possession. Here's an example. You ever heard this? These two things, the love of money and the value of money. Now, in each case, the words of money, they're the genitive having to do with possession. In the first phrase, money is the object, the love of money. It's the object. It is the thing that is loved. That means the person involved has a love for money. In the second phrase, phrase value of money, the of money is still the genitive, but here it is the subject, not the object. The phrase does not refer, refer to an individual who values money. It speaks of money's value, the value that money actually possesses. Now, here's another phrase that we see often in Scripture, the love of God. Is it a subjective genitive, genitive or an objective genitive? Well, truthful here, in this case, it can be either. If God is the subject, the phrase refers to God's love for us. If God is the object, it means that we have a love for God as the object. The words can have either meaning. The interpretation has to be determined by the context. So with that distinction in mind, let's go back to our passage here in the phrase, heirs of God. Is it a subjective or objective genitive? Again, it could be either. If it's subjective, then God is the subject. And the meaning is that we belong to God as God's heirs. He has fixed His love upon us and, 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 and made us His heirs by grace. And that is certainly true. If it is an objective genitive, then the meaning is that we have God as our inheritance. God is the object. That is our inheritance. Now, this is the boldest of the two possibilities, but I'm convinced that what, this is what Paul is saying here. I've got some reasons. Number one, they're there, they're in your notes if you want to look. It's taught in the Old Testament. Paul certainly knew the Old Testament and he drew from it often. It's true that the Old Testament often speaks as land or speaks of the land, uh, the land of promise in particular, as the people of Israel's inheritance. This was a literal earthly inheritance, though it related to God's greater promises to the patriarchs and to their descendants. The important thing, however, is that this is transcended over and over again by passages that speak of, speak of God Himself as the inheritance. For example, Psalm 73, 25 and 26, it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Lamentations 3.24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. How about there? There we are waiting again. Because God is our portion. 
or Numbers 18.20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. This greater reality, it was seen as well in regard to the inheritance of the tribe of Levi. This is an inheritance given to them when the people invaded Canaan to possess it in the days of Joshua. You'll recall that the land was divided uh, tribe by tribe along the, along the lines specified by Moses even before the conquest began. They determined who was going to get what piece of land. Each got its predetermined portion, Reuben, Manasseh, Gad, Judah, Benjamin, all of them except Levi. Levi was a tribe of the priests. They were scattered throughout the entire land of Israel in 48 priestly towns. From there, they were to serve the whole people of Israel in God's name. They had no inheritance because, it, as it was said of them in Joshua 13, the God of Israel is their inheritance as He promised them. Which would you rather have, some land or God? Whew. Now, in the case of Israel, the land was certainly a good thing. It was promised from the time of Abraham. But the truly greater inheritance was God Himself. The purpose of scattering the Levites among the nations was to remind them all of that. It's better to have God than it is land. Well, number two, second reason is we are co-heirs with Christ. That is, we inherit whatever we do inherit along with Jesus. But as soon as we ask, what does Jesus inherit, the four lesser things that I just mentioned, they don't seem to fit very well. Jesus doesn't inherit heaven or home in heaven. He's actually gone there to prepare a place for us. He doesn't actually inherit a kingdom over which he is to rule, though we sometimes think of it in that way. Rather, he is already the ruler. He's the sovereign Lord. We looked at that in Matthew uh, uh, 28, verse 18, when Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He, he, he's the man. Well, similarly, neither the heavenly banquet nor his own character can rightly be said uh, to be something that is willed to him or passed on to him by God. So what is Jesus' inheritance then? Well, the only thing that can properly be said to be his inheritance is the Father. Jesus is getting at this in John 17. This is part of his high priestly prayer. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. This is Jesus to the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Christ's inheritance is the glory of God. And that means the vision of the participation in and the enjoyment of God himself. Now, this is the exact flow of of the thought here in, in verse 17. Having spoken, spoken of us becoming heirs and having reminded us that we must enter th through uh, the gate of suffering, Paul ends up again with glory, reminding us that we may also share in his Christ's glory, which is the glory of God. 
Well, the third reason that I believe that we actually inherit God has to do with something that is not in our passage today, but you're probably familiar with this. Number three, the Holy Spirit is given to us as an earnest or a deposit. Elsewhere, particularly in, first, in Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks of this earnest or this deposit as guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, an earnest, that's a pledge of something greater, but it's more than a mere document or bill of sale or contract. It's a part of what, what actually is to come later. For example, when we buy a house, we usually guarantee our intent to purchase uh, by making a prepayment of a smaller amount, obviously, a cash pledge of the greater amount to come down the road. Well, think about it this way. If the, in, if the earnest of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit, and Paul says it is, who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. Then the full inheritance will be God himself. Now, Robert Haldane, he, he writes brilliant, brilliantly on some of the deepest subjects. He says at this point, God is the portion of his people, and in him, who is the possessor of heaven and earth, they are heirs of all things. God is all-sufficient, and this is an all-sufficient inheritance, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. It is God himself then who is the inheritance of his children. He communicates himself to them by his grace, his light, his holiness, and his life. End quote. Now think about it. If God is our inheritance, uh, we can be assured of salvation since nothing is going to move God. Nothing is ever going to dispossess us of our heavenly inheritance. Now, all of this would just be kind of pie in the sky if it did not have a practical effect on us. Yet, that is precisely what it does have. If we truly believe it, and if we are thinking this way. Let's go back. Let's consider Abraham. The history of God's act of re acts of redemption begins with Abraham when God called him out of his uh, homeland, his own country, and sent him into a new land. God promised him, I will bless you and all of the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this calling there in Genesis, uh, yeah, Genesis chapter 12, it contained the promise of a land, but it was far more than that. By promising a blessing to the nations through Abraham, God was also promising the Redeemer who was to come through his offspring. Now, that promise was amplified throughout Abraham's long life, and it was this promise on which Abraham's faith and hope were fixed. That's why when the author of Hebrews, he, when he came to praise Abraham for his faith in that great chapter, we call it the, the hall of faith, it's chapter 11 Hebrews, here's what he says of Abraham. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking, this is talking about Abraham, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Heirs of promise? Yes. But the promise was not earthly. 
It was a promise of great spiritual blessing to be fulfilled ultimately in heaven. It's the same with all the other heroes of the faith in this chapter. In fact, that's why uh, Hebrews 11 was written. Um, verse 4 says that by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than, than, than Cain did, and God accounted him, Abel, to be a righteous man. Did Abel receive any earthly inheritance? No, he was murdered for his obedience, <laughs> but he received a reward in heaven. Enoch, remember Enoch? He was a preacher. He preached at the judgment before the great flood, warning the ungodly of his day to repent and to flee from sin to God. He preached for 300 years, but he had no reward here. He was utterly unsuccessful. No one was converted. When the time of the flood came, the only ones who were saved were Noah, his wife, and their immediate family. Enoch pleased no one on earth. But he has this testimony. This is verse 5. He says, he was commended as one who pleased God. Woo. Which would you rather have on your epitaph? Ooh, he pleased man or no, he pleased God. What did Noah inherit? Everything he had was swept away in the flood. Yet the writer says of him, by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Isaac and Jacob, they lived with Abraham in tents, having no real inheritance here. But they looked to the future, and they hoped for that. Although sometimes they did it badly, you got to admit. Joseph lost his home and his freedom for righteousness' sake. And even though God later advanced him and made him the second in power to Pharaoh of Egypt, Joseph's hopes were not there in Egypt. He hoped in God's promise, giving instructions that his body was not to be buried in one of the Egyptian tombs, but was to be car uh, carried from Egypt back to Canaan, the promised land, when God eventually, 300 and something years later, led the people out of slavery. Moses he had no lo uh, love for this earth's treasures. He sought no earthly reward. Rather, he turned his back on the riches of Egypt. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. That's what verse 26 says. It was the same with all the Old Testament believers. You name them. Rahab, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, David, Daniel, all the prophets. Here, here, here's what Hebrews says again. Such heroes of the faith, they were tortured. They refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced years in flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, listen to this, yet none of them received what had been promised. That's, that's huge. Not then, anyway. Well, let me do it in the past. Not then, anyway. But they have received it now. They have gone before us to take possession of the inheritance prepared in heaven for God's saints. Why should we expect it to be any different for us? It won't be. So why, when all Scripture teaches that our inheritance is in heaven, 
and not on earth, why should we spend so much effort trying to amass our fortunes here? Why should we expect our lives to proceed along a gentle, rose-covered path when others have gained heaven only by sailing through bloody seas? I'm convinced that Paul doesn't just want us to think about these things intellectually and walk away saying, hmm, that's interesting, I learned something today. Rather, he wants us to feel emotionally the wonderful grace and love of being an adopted child of God and heirs of all the glorious riches that God has stored up for us in eternity. And one of the reasons he does that is so that we will joyfully persevere in our present sufferings. We didn't cover that today. That's what We're going to talk about suffering next week. So if you want to skip one because you don't want to get down. But think about it in context here. There's only glory provided we suffer with Him. We'll, we'll get in detail with that. Consider this illustration. This is from John Newton. You remember him? He was a converted slave trader uh, who turned pastor and hymn writer. He says, suppose a man is going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way to the city. What a fool we would think of him to be if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. He's going to take over a huge estate. Well, guess what? Your carriage may be broken. And I promise you, to some degree, all of our carriages are broken on this earth. Keep this in mind. Keep going. There is a rich inheritance and eternal glory just ahead. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these promises. They do go beyond our existence here. They talk about a time when we will be um, in your direct presence. Father, as it is, Jesus is our mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when we will see you face to face. We will see Jesus face to face. We will inherit these great promises that we see throughout Scripture. God, I pray that it's the vision of those things that would help us in our trials even today. But Father, I know that even right now that there are people sitting in this congregation today who do not know your son Jesus. They've never come to you. God, I pray that you would open their, open their eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, that they would be drawn to him. Father, that you would forgive their sins and make them your child. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, during the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, what do you call it, the offering, uh, we saw the video of three circles. Uh, I've used that many, many times. I had, somebody, I had somebody this morning ask me how to talk to a child about the gospel. This works for children if you just use small language. If there's one more, I'm going to go through it just like the dude did, maybe a little bit differently, but it's the same principles. It's, it's something you need to know. If, if I describe the world as broken, would you go, oh, he's off his rocker? You would think, well, that's too tame of a word. Of course, the world is broken. And we try all kind of th th things. We try all kind of things to fix it, but none of them work. Now, the world wasn't created that, that way. 
Actually, I'm doing it backwards. It's on this side. God created the world perfect. But then sin came into the world. And it messed up everything, including the inhabitants of the world, which is us. That's why things are broken. All right? And there's only one way to get out of this brokenness. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to pay the penalty for us on our behalf, in our stead, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We call that the gospel. That's the bottom circle. The first is perfection. Yeah, but sin broke it. We're in brokenness. The only remedy is the gospel. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. He's the one you have offended. And then trust what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago on your behalf. Do that, and he'll make you a child of his. And, and then you will be an heir of God. Co-heirs, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. If you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, I encourage you this morning, if you want more, if you have questions, if you need answers to some things, come talk to me. Don't sit out there and ponder this and let the devil wiggle you out of here saying, well, I wish I'd have found this out. No, you come talk to me. All right, we'll go straight to Scripture, and I'll show you what it means when, when, it, when it talks about the gospel and what that is and why it is so significant. You need Jesus if you do not have him today. Now, if you've got Jesus, okay, we didn't talk about, we, we've only touched on it, the reason uh, that, that Paul um, tags together glory through suffering. There's not anybody in here that to some degree is not suffering, you know, if you're in high school, maybe you've got a test that you're scared of coming up. Trust me, on the grand scheme of things, that's not much. Because on the other end, we've got folk, folk, folks in here that are literally facing their own uh, mortality. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a much more serious issue. We are all suffering to some degree. It's in our suffering that we remember, oh, this is short. The suffering, whatever it is, even if it lasts the rest of my life, it is short compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in heaven. Man, just, just look beyond the suffering. Look to Jesus and what lies ahead, ahead, and it will get you through what you're going through. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.